We are the U.S. branch of International Pen, the world's oldest the world's <clears throat> excuse me the world's oldest international literary and human rights organization, founded in direct response to the ethnic and national divisions that led to the First World War. We are now the largest of the 144 Penn centers in 101 countries. And this year, Penn American Center celebrates its 90th anniversary. Throughout our history, we have played an essential role in the struggle to oppose censorship and to defend the rights of readers and writers at home and abroad. Today, we carry the torch once held by such luminous members as W.H. Auden, James Baldwin, Willa Cather, Robert Frost, Allen Ginsberg, Langston Hughes, Thomas Mann, Marion Moore, Eugene O'Neill, Susan Sontag, John Steinbeck, and of course, Arthur Miller. It was Miller who said of Penn that it is the voice of cultures truthfully addressing one another rather than governments or armies in confrontation. The object, he said, is not to win something, but to illuminate something. To do that, Penn's programs reach out to the world and into diverse communities within this country through our prison writing program, our open book program promoting diversity in literature and publishing communities, our children and young adult books program, and our readers and writers program, both of which encourage literature among low-income communities, our translation program, our literary awards program, the Penn Journal, and our freedom to write advocacy. And of course, our World Voices program, which gives wider exposure here to writers from other cultures. You can find out more about what we do and why you should consider joining our ranks and indeed what our acronym means at pen.org. <clears throat> All of our programs promote writing and literature at every level and are founded on our core belief that free expression is an essential component of every healthy society. Now, before I go ahead and introduce the Penn World Voices uh, Festival director, I just want to, on behalf of Cooper's Union, make a quick announcement, which is that Barney Rossett, former publisher of Grove Press and founder of the Evergreen Review, died recently, and there will be a celebration of his life here in the Great Hall tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Under Rossett's direction, Grove Press introduced writers such as Samuel Beckett, Eugene Ionesco, Jean Genet to America, along with French surrealists, German expressionists, and the beat poets. In the 1960s, he challenged censorship by publishing Lady Shatley's Lover and Tropic of Cancer, and by distributing the erotic Swedish film I Am Curious Yellow, of which I was told that the advertising copy in England said this film made even the Swedes gasp. <clears throat> His legal victories in these cases were a major victory for the freedom of expression. The doors will open here for the memorial at 5 o'clock. And now it's my, great, uh, <clears throat> it's my great pleasure to welcome the director of the Penn World Voices Festival, Jakob Oshos. Good evening. It's my pleasure to welcome everyone. 
at the very last event of the 2012 edition of the Pember Voices Festival. My name is Laszlo Jakaborsos, and I am Hungarian. In normal times, I wouldn't mention this. In not so normal times, in which we happen to live now, I feel I need to mention it. I come from a country where the notion of freedom is being reinterpreted by the people in power in such a peculiar way that it leaves no room for freedom. Their cynicism, and that of others like them, only emphasizes the importance of the Arthur Miller lecture which you are about to hear. The list of previous years Arthur Miller speakers is a really impressive line. In previous years, the festival has commissioned lectures by Orhan Pamuk, David Grossman, Umberto Eco, Naval Al-Sadavi, Christopher Hitchens, and Wale Soyinka last year. In 2012, the edition of the festival had, in this edition of the festival, then 100 writers, actually more than 100 writers, from 40 different, 40 different countries participating in 37 different events throughout the week, ranging from readings to debates, workshops, and performances, and parties. This year, in these turbulent times, we said that in this very intense year, we should go back to the festival's founder and ask to share his thoughts on the faces of censorship and the role of the writer within the climate of forced silence and intolerance. Ladies and gentlemen, to deliver the 2012's Arthur Miller Freedom to Write lecture, later to be jo joined by Gary Steingart, please welcome Salman Rushdie. Thank you. I should just say, since, since this lecture is named after Arthur Miller, that it's wonderful to see um, a revival of interest in his work. That in the last few years of his life, I know it was difficult for him to get some of his plays put on um, in New York. And he, a lot, the last couple of plays really were premiered in London. So this extraordinary production of Death of a Salesman, it's wonderful to see the audiences going back towards him. Um, well, I'm here, I guess, to talk about censorship, but no writer ever really wants to talk about censorship. Writers want to talk about writer stuff. Uh, <laughs> writers want to talk about creation, and censorship is anti-creation negative energy, uncreation, the bringing into being of non-being, or to use Tom Stoppard's description of death, the absence of presence. Censorship is the thing that stops you doing what you want to do, and what writers want to talk about is what they do, not what stops them doing it. Writers want to talk about how much they get paid, and they want to gossip about other writers and how much they get paid. <laughs> and they want to complain about critics and publishers and gripe about politicians. Sometimes they want to talk about what they love, the writers they love, the stories and even sentences that have meant something to them. And finally, they want to talk about themselves. <laughs> they want to talk about their own ideas and their own stories, their things. The British humorist Paul Jennings, in his brilliant 
essay on resistentialism, a spoof of existentialism, proposed that the world was divided into two categories, that, that the whole world fell into one of these categories. The categories were thing and no thing. And between thing and no thing, he suggested, there is a never-ending war. He, par he parodies the famous line of Sartre, um, les choses sont entre nous, things are among us. He, translate, he rephrases it, les choses sont contre nous, things are against us. And if writing is thing, then censorship is no thing. And as King Lear told Cordelia, no thing will come of no thing. <laughs> Think again. Censorship changes the subject and introduces a more tedious subject and creates a more boring world. And speaking as somebody who is easily bored, that alone is a very strong reason for opposing it. Consider, if you will, the air. Here it is, all around us, plentiful, freely available, and broadly, even in the Great Hall of the Cooper Union, breathable. And yes, I know it's not perfectly clean or perfectly pure, but here it is, nevertheless, plenty of it, enough for all of us and lots to spare. When breathable air is available so freely and in such quantity, it would be redundant to demand that breathable air should be freely provided to all, in sufficient quantity for the needs of all. What you have, you can easily take for granted and ignore. There's, there's just no need to make a fuss about it. You breathe the freely available, broadly breathable air, and you get on with your day. The air is not a subject. It is not something that most of us want to discuss. Imagine now, somewhere up there, you might find a giant set of faucets, and that the air we breathe flows from those faucets, hot air and cold air and tepid air from some celestial mixer unit. And imagine that an entity up there, not known to us, or perhaps known to us, begins on a certain day to turn off the faucets one by one so that slowly we begin to notice that the available air, still breathable, still free, is thinning. The time comes when we find that we are breathing more heavily, perhaps even when we are gasping for air. By this time, many of us would have begun to protest, to condemn the reduction in the air supply, and to argue loudly for the right to freely available, broadly breathable air. Scarcity, you could say, creates demand. Liberty is the air we breathe. And if we live as we do, in a part of the world where imperfect as the supply is, it is nevertheless freely available, at least to those of us who are not black youngsters wearing hoodies in Miami, and broadly breathable, unless, of course, we're women in red states trying to make free choices about our own bodies, imperfectly free, imperfectly breathable. But when it is breathable and free, we don't need to make a song and dance about it. We take it for granted and get on with our day. And at night, as we fall asleep, we assume we will be free tomorrow because we were free today. The creative act requires not only freedom, but also this assumption of future freedom. 
If the creative artist worries whether he will still be free tomorrow, then he will not be free today. If he is afraid of the consequences of his choice of subject or of his manner of treatment of it, then his choices will not entirely be determined by his talent, but at least in part by fear. If we are not confident of our freedom, then we are not free. And even worse than that, when censorship intrudes on art, then it becomes the subject. The art becomes censored art. And that is how the world sees it and understands it. The censor labels the work immoral or blasphemous or pornographic or controversial. And those words are forever hung like albatrosses around the necks of those cursed mariners, the censored works. The attack on the work does more than define the work. In a sense, for the general public, it becomes the work. For every re reader of Lady Chatley's Lover or Tropic of Cancer, for every viewer of Last Tango in Paris or A Clockwork Orange, there will be 10 or 100 or 1,000 people who know those works as excessively filthy or excessively violent or both because that's what they have been told about them. The assumption of guilt replaces the assumption of innocence. Why did that Indian Muslim artist have to paint those Hindu goddesses in the nude? Couldn't he have respected their modesty? Why did that Russian writer have his hero fall in love with a nymphette? Couldn't he have chosen a legally acceptable age? <laughs> Why did that British playwright depict a sexual assault in a Sikh temple? Couldn't the same assault have been removed from holy ground? Why are artists so troublesome? Can't they just offer us beauty, morality, and a damn good story? Why do artists think, if they behave in this way, that we should be on their side? There's a song about this. And the people all said, sit down. <laughs> sit down, you're rocking the boat. And the devil will drag you under with a soul so heavy you'll never float. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. Sit down, you're rocking the boat. At its most effective, the censor's lie actually succeeds in replacing the artist's truth. That which is censored is thought to have deserved censorship. Boat rocking is deplored. Nor is this only so in the world of art. The Ministry of Truth in present-day China, that Orwellian institution, has successfully persuaded a very large part of the Chinese public that the heroes of Tiananmen Square were actually villains bent on the destruction of the nation. People believe this because it's the only truth they've ever been told. This is the final victory of the censor when people, even people who know that they are routinely lied to, cease to be able to imagine what is really the case. Sometimes great banned works defy the censor's description and impose themselves on the world. Ulysses, Lolita, the Arabian Nights. Sometimes great and brave artists defy the censors to create marvelous literature underground, as in the case of the Samizdat literature of the Soviet Union. Sometimes they make subtle films that dodge the edge of the censor's knife, as in the case of much contemporary Iranian and some Chinese cinema. You will even find people who will give you the argument 
that censorship is good for artists because it challenges the imagination. This is like arguing that if you cut a man's arms off, you can praise him for learning to write with a pen held between his teeth. Censorship is not good for art. And it is even worse for artists themselves. The work of Ai Weiwei survives. The artist himself has an increasingly difficult life. The poet Ovid was banished to the Black Sea by a displeased Augustus Caesar and spent the rest of his life in a little hellhole of a village called Tomis, begging to be allowed to return to Rome. He never was, died in exile, but the poetry of Ovid has outlived the Roman Empire. The poet Mandelstam died in one of Stalin's labor camps, but the poetry of Mandelstam has outlived the Soviet Union. The poet Lorca was murdered in Spain by Generalissimo Franco's goons, but the poetry of Lorca has outlived the fascistic phalange. So perhaps we can argue that art is stronger than the censor, and perhaps it often is. Artists, however, are vulnerable. Here at Penn, our task is to try to defend, to try to defend and protect the artist as well as the art, the writer in prison as well as his imprisoned or forbidden words. On behalf of everyone at Penn, I'd like, I'd like to thank you for coming out this week to support Penn World Voices, and I'd like to remind you that there are many countries in the world in which a, gather, a gathering such as this, where a hundred or so writers talk about all manner of things in all manner of different ways, simply could not happen. The air is unclean here, but it is breathable. I'm about to be arrested. <laughs> 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 The arrival of the police state. Well, which proves, as I was just about to say, there's no reason for us to be complacent. In, in England last week, English Penn protested that the London Book Fair had invited only a bunch of official state-approved writers, comparable to those very poor writers who were the sort of official writers of the Soviet Union, um, while the voices of at least 35 writers jailed by the regime, including the Nobel laureate Liu Xiaobo and the Penn member Zhu Yufu, remained silent and ignored. In the United States every year, religious zealots try to ban a list of writers as disparate as Kurt Vonnegut and J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, that obvious advocate of sorcery um, <laughs> and unchristian behavior. Um, I'm referring only to Quidditch when I say unchristian behavior. Um, <laughs> That I could support a ban on, actually. No more Quidditch. Sorry, that's it. I, I digress. And of course, poor old God-bothered Charles Darwin is somebody against whom the advocates of intelligent design, wonderful name, intelligent design, means exact opposite of what it says. You know? <laughs> you know, 
unintelligent design continue to march. I, once, I wrote an essay about this some years ago, and it still feels true. And I said that the attacks on the theory of evolution in parts of the United States themselves go some way to disproving Darwin's theory. Um, demonstrating that natural selection doesn't always work, um, uh, or at least not in the Kansas area, and that human beings are capable of evolving backwards um, towards the missing link. Even more serious is the growing acceptance of, of this idea, this don't rock the boat response to the, towards those artists who do rock it, there seems to be a growing agreement, even in free societies, that censorship can be justified when certain interest groups or genders or faiths declare themselves affronted by a piece of work. So this is the thought I just would like to leave you with before we find out what Gary Steingart has in store for me. I'm dreading it. <laughs> um, great art or let's just say more modestly, original art is never created in the safe middle ground, but always at the edge. Originality is dangerous. If you want to increase the sum of what it's possible for human beings to say, to know, to understand, and therefore in the end to be, you actually have to go to the edge and push outwards. Originality is dangerous. It challenges questions, overturns assumptions, unsettles moral codes, disrespects sacred cows or other such entities. It can be shocking or ugly, or to use that catch-all term so beloved of the tabloid press, controversial. And there are powerful forces in many societies, including this one, who don't want those boundaries to be pushed outwards, who don't want us to be allowed to think new thoughts, to think dangerous thoughts, to think original thoughts. There are, there are forces in every society, including this one, which push back against the efforts of artists and intellectuals, thinkers, to increase those boundaries. And that pushing back can sometimes be very dangerous for the artists concerned. But if we believe in liberty, if we want the air we breathe to remain plentiful and breathable, this is the kind of art whose right to exist we must not only defend, but celebrate. Art is not entertainment. At its very best, it's a revolution. Thank you. <laughs>